Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Good evening to everyone here in the United States, and good morning to you, Mr. President in Beijing. Good to see you, Mr. President, and your colleagues. It's the first time for us to meet virtually. Although it's not as good as a face-to-face meeting, I'm very happy to see my old friend. And that's how our week started, with smiles, waves, and good morning, Mr. President, on Zoom. It would appear the camaraderie and goodwill lasted, let's say, about 36 hours. And here we are on Friday, and let's recap the developments over the past 24 hours. With Joe Biden first talking about a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics in February, Taiwan announcing it's buying a bunch of new F-16 fighter jets from the USA, and the Women's Tennis Association appearing to serve up some of the fiercest rhetoric about China that we've heard from an international sporting organization. I'm Chad Bray, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. They say a week is a long time in politics, but for geopolitics, baby, we are born to run. And we are running. Now, despite some of the analysis claiming that the Xi-Biden summit didn't really resolve or change anything, there was a lot that came out of that three-hour call, with very different perspectives on the meeting's outcomes in mainland China compared to the United States. That's why we've convened our own Washington-Beijing Zoom Summit with our North American bureau chief, Rob Delaney, and our Beijing-based news desk editor, Mai Jun, to contrast the presidential Zoom summit and how it played to domestic audiences. And this week feels like it's the season for summits. The four-day meeting known as the Davos of Asia ended today in Singapore. And our Asia correspondent, Bhavan J. Pragas, is on the scene with analysis of what was talked about on stage and during the breaks, including what sounds like the beginning of a campaign by the U.S. to get support for a new kind of multilateral trade deal. He's also going to preview another summit that's happening on Monday. That's when Xi Jinping will be dialing into the ASEAN meeting and making an announcement on the upgrading of China's relationship with this 54-year-old institution. What does it mean? What comes next? And can we finish recording this episode before another major development or I run out of breath? Let's run till we drop. We have our North American bureau chief, Rob Delaney in Washington, and our China desk news editor, Meijun Beijing, on the line. Good morning to both of you. Good morning, Chad. Morning, Chad. Now, uh, Rob, let me start with you. It's been quite an interesting week this week. We've had U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, meeting virtually. And, uh, Rob, I wanted to start with you and talk a little bit about the meeting. We we had the Biden administration invite a number of American journalists in to sort of get a scene of the room at the start of the meeting. Could you talk a little bit about sort of, you know, how typical that is and and what this might mean to have uh, American journalists in at the beginning of the meeting? 
Sure, it, it makes for good optics. It shows that you've got all of the bigwigs in the Biden administration around the table. It certainly projects a bit of strength and I think stability after many months of pundits and analysts talking about the lack of a very clear China policy. So the way they bring the, the media in sort of just shows that the Biden administration, when it comes to China, is, is very much together. And of course, allowing them to hear some of the initial comments that curries favor with journalists, right? Because that lets them run out of the room when they're all escorted out, and then they can get a report out early on what's happening. And, and it lets them know early on what was the tone of the discussion or how did it start. And Major, I wanted to turn to you because it was a little bit different in China, you know, at least from what we could see from the American media. It, it was she uh, by himself at a desk on a television screen with an American flag and a Chinese flag behind him. But right after the meeting, we, we started to see leaks from uh, Chinese state media about details of it. So w- what should we make of this? You know, what details did state media focus on? Um, First of all, it's not that unusual for state media to sort of intentionally uh, leak details of the meetings so quickly. Um, I remember during the uh, the trade talks between Liu He and Ambassador Lighthizer, there were a lot of uh, details leaked uh, from some of those meetings, including one in 2019. You know, a lot of details were about how Lighthizer was eating Chinese food, uh, rice with chicken, and uh, Liu He was uh, eating American burger, and they were sort of, you know, getting along and all that. So I think those details were leaked because, you know, Beijing has an intention to show to its public that, you know, we are talking, things are moving, it's looking positive. So this is also what we uh, saw this time. The state media, they um, paid a lot of attention to the details, including uh, the one that, oh, Joe Biden uh, actually was wearing a red tie, you know, a different tie from the one he was wearing when he signed the infrastructure deal a while ago. And the things like, uh, oh, what about the hours? You know, the hours uh, when they met, it was in the morning in Beijing and it was at night in Washington. Uh, some social media of the state media, they get a little bit flexible and creative. They said, guess who has to work overtime after this meeting? Obviously, it's the Americans. So it's so, it was sort of trying to send a signal that, you know, the Chinese side is having the upper hand and the American side was trying to impress the Chinese side or at least be very friendly to the Chinese side. You know, post-meeting, we've started to see some details of, of, of different things that were discussed. But there's one word that seems to have dominated the analysis following the summit, and, and that's Taiwan. And there's sort of wildly differing accounts about, you know, what was said or agreed to, and also some confusion a bit over what Biden said afterward. So, Rob, could you talk us a, uh, through a little bit about you know, what Biden said and, and, you know, is there confusion about the U.S. policy on Taiwan? Well, Biden, he, he came out with a, with a comment in, in a press gaggle about uh, how Taiwan was effectively independent. And he walked it back quickly. And I think what he was trying to say was that when he made that comment, he meant that it, there's this de facto self-government in Taiwan. It is its own government. It, it has its own currency. And he meant it in that respect and not in the respect of official independence from uh, mainland China. They always come back to well, whatever they say, whatever flubs they might make, they always come back to reinforcing and reiterating the one China policy. And that's 
th- that's what the Biden administration did. Biden himself and, of course, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan did it in his talk on Tuesday, the day after the virtual summit. But yes, there are different interpretations about once they say one China, then there's also the, the very quickly they will come in with the Taiwan Relations Act. And then sometimes with the sequences, we will, of course, when it comes to our Taiwan policy, we abide by the Taiwan Relations Act, which, of course, China doesn't want to hear. And the three joint communiques, which China does want to hear because they established the one China policy. And then they follow up and this and the six assurances, which are the the clauses that they more or less say to Taiwan, we are going to ignore the protests from China when it comes to us selling you arms. So, you know, if you think of it that way, on the one hand, we support the one China policy. We uphold, we adhere to the one China policy. Yes, that's very good. That's a thumbs up from Beijing. But then in the next breath, they'll say Taiwan Relations Act, uh, joint communiques, six assurances. And when you see it presented that way, that's kind of the the two bad things in terms of Beijing's perspective, kind of sandwich the one good thing that they like. So th- there's just that ambiguity. It's just like, which second of the comment they're making about Taiwan do you want to tune into? Because any one of those seconds will have a different interpretation. And Medjur, I, I want to ask you about how that's sort of playing out in state media. Given that sort of ambiguous, if if not confusing, sort of response by the U.S., you know, as Rob said, you know, what part of the statement do you pick to sort of listen to? How has this fed sort of into rhetoric in state media, you know, that there has been a, an increasing amount of discussion about Taiwan and, and Taiwan being fully part of China? And also, you know, what kind of response have we seen officially from Beijing's uh, foreign ministry on this? Uh, first of all, I think the state media at large, they do not pay a lot of attention to what Biden said to uh, on Taiwan. A lot of the coverage about the summit was given to how positive this entire thing would look like in the near future. So I think the state media, I have the feeling that the state media was, you know, intentionally downplaying what Biden said on Taiwan. Um, so in terms of the foreign ministry spokesperson, he gave me the same impression, too, when he said yes. Yesterday, he actually he was he was responding to a question by Bloomberg. So the reporter specifically asked about you know Biden's comment on Taiwan and what does China make of it. So Zhao Lijian, you know, he's well known for his very assertive attitude. He actually did not mention Biden's name, and he only mentioned that this so-called Taiwan Relations Act and the Six Assurances they are completely you know against in the U.S. international obligation and it has no legal base and it's invalid. So I think compared to a lot of the previous uh, remarks on Taiwan by the foreign ministry, actually, this is actually pretty weak, I would say. And Rob, let, let me come back to you, because one of the terms that we're hearing a fair bit about right now is, quote unquote, guardrails to ensure competition doesn't veer into conflict. So what does that mean? Because, you know, we we've have a number of things, whether it be the South China Sea or its business competition that, that have been on the table recently. They're using this term guardrails because there are so many new factors entering into the military equation in the South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan Strait. And most pointedly, of course, the hydrosonic missile test that really took the U.S. military, uh, the Pentagon, off guard, it, it would seem. 
And uh, also we've got reports coming out about plans for China to double or perhaps I think as much as quadruple its nuclear arsenal. And when you combine that with these advances in artificial intelligence that are being deployed to sort of further advance these weapon systems, all of a sudden you have a whole host of factors that are both technological, they're man-made. They're trying to say that we have to find some way to keep all of this going in a direction that does not veer off into some sort of conflict. So again, guardrails just, you know, if you think of it visually, you can, you know, just imagine someone who's holding a lot of equipment uh, or let's just say a lot of plates and they're difficult to balance all of these things and trying to manage all of these things that you've got in your hands makes it difficult to go in a straight line and the guardrails just make sure you don't fall off the side. And of course, we all know if anyone falls off the side in this trajectory that they're headed on, whether it's Beijing's military or whether it's uh, the U.S. military, veering off leads to war, and everyone's trying to avoid that. And Medjun, I, I wanted to turn back to you because th- there's been talk about how much actionables were sort of reached within this summit. Was it, was it just sort of breaking the ice, sort of thawing tensions a bit, you know, but, but how much actually really happened? And, and one thing that was sort of seen as a big deal was, was this thawing over journalists from both China being able to return to the U.S., but also extending visas to U.S. journalists and, and organizations that had, you know, not been able to get visas, frankly, for not only the mainland, but also Hong Kong. So I wanted to ask you, what are you hearing from your sources about what was accomplished and and how is this playing out? Has some of the vitriol that we've seen in social media and other places eased a bit? Um, Let me answer your first question first. Um, I think in terms of the uh, journalist uh, situation, it's not entirely clear what's going to happen, like uh, which reporters would be allowed uh, back to China. I I do hear that there were this kind of uh, negotiations going on in the past few months. And I think uh, this is what the uh, Chinese side and the U.S. side both said. So I think they're just sort of waiting for a proper timing to announce the progress. But to be honest, Honest, we don't know what exactly those progress is in, in terms of I think it's uh, clearer in terms of the U.S. side. They are saying that, you know, they're giving all Chinese reporters in U.S. multiple entry visas. I mean, when I went to the U.S. in 2018, I was on a single entry visa as well. But uh, in terms of American journalists uh, covering in China, that's a little bit more vague because uh, when we talk about how Beijing expelled U.S. journalists, there were actually a few rounds of it. Uh, First of all, they expelled three Wall Street Journal reporters after there was an opinion piece that said China is the real sick man of Asia. So Beijing really uh, was pissed off by it and, you know, they kicked out three Wall Street Journal reporters. And after that there were some sporadic expulsion, including New York Times reporter Chris Buckley. Well, he's a Australian national, but uh, he works for U.S. media. And then in March, it's like China just collectively just kicked off around a dozen of other uh, U.S. reporters. So about which reporters uh, are being allowed to get back, we we have no ideas yet. But it seems like when China made those decisions over the past two years, it's like they were changing by different things and different purposes. So I'm not entirely sure whether China would just give a, like a green light to everybody. And I, I doubt if that's true. 
and Rob, to turn to you, sort of, what are you hearing on the, on the U.S. side? I think some of what we've seen reported has talked about sort of a one-year multi-entry visa. That's what we heard from the State Department. They weren't very clear about the timing for this. So generally, they're talking about uh, one-year visas and, and this general understanding that the two sides are going to come up with reciprocal arrangements. So we don't have any details yet about exactly which journalists are, are regaining access to China. Of course, there's the COVID situation that, and, and we all know that China's uh, quarantine arrangements are, are quite strict. Uh, so we don't know yet. All, all we know is that the Chinese side has said that U.S. journalists uh, will be allowed in once the U.S. side puts into place the arrangements that will allow the Chinese journalists to stay in the U.S. on one uh, multiple entry one year visas. Let, let me ask also uh, in terms of that, you know, one of the big things when when this first happened was that Chinese journalists had to register as, as foreign agents. And have we heard anything from state about that, if that policy is going to change? Uh, we haven't heard anything beyond the understanding that they will get multiple entry visas. They didn't clarify anything yet about whether or not they would continue to be required to register as foreign agents. We don't know that yet. And Meijun, let, let me ask you about sort of the public opinion out there on social media, the net citizens. Have you noticed any softening in sort of their tone about the U.S. after this, or, or is it sort of similar to what we've seen recently? It's still similar to what we've seen recently, but I think there is, because there's an intense messaging campaign in the past two days after uh, uh, the Xi Biden summit from the state media, you know, this message is things are going to get better, things are moving because President Xi Jinping personally got involved, so everything would be at least slightly better. But I think in terms of the more structural problems, first of all, I don't think the state media has completely changed the tone of its reporting about China. Yesterday, I was still seeing CCTV floating the same conspiracy theory about, you know, the coronavirus might be originally come from the U.S. and things like that. So I don't see a fundamental change of public opinions yet. And even after the sixth plenum, there was a press conference and one of the senior officials from the Communist Party who spoke about the plenum and he sort of went into length in discrediting U.S. democracy and especially the upcoming democracy summit the U.S. is going to host. So I think a lot of those structural tensions are still there. And whenever there is such a discussion about, you know, the democracy summit, you know, the coronavirus origin, the netizens are still pretty much as angry as they were on the Chinese side. And Rob, talking about sort of uh, uh, hot touch points, uh, so to speak, Biden was said to have raised Hong Kong, Xinjiang and Tibet in the discussions with uh, with Xi. And so are you getting any details about sort of what he was asking about or, or the points he was trying to make? Well, according to Jake Sullivan, who uh, again gave his debrief after the meeting, uh, yeah, he, he said all of those subjects came up. He stressed that Biden was very straightforward about what America's bottom line is on these issues. He said that he stressed American values, democracy, transparency, and that the U.S. side will not 
let up on these things. And it was interesting in, in the Brookings discussion that ensued after Sullivan gave his debrief, uh, they were pointing out that given that the Biden administration will continue to push on these issues of, of human rights and of the status quo in the Taiwan Strait and in the, the semi-autonomy for Hong Kong, uh, they note that even though you've got this what is very clearly an attempt on both sides to sort of stabilize the relationship, no one can really see where where is there any room to negotiate. You have very hardened positions on both sides, and particularly with the Biden uh, administration. All we know is that they're saying that they have agreed to start more formal and regular talks. We have this understanding on both sides that it, it is good for the two sides to stay in contact, and, and that's why... You had Sullivan saying, yes, Biden did ask for a series of talks that will address the buildup of arms and of military technology. And so all we know is that both sides agree that talks are good, but everyone's kind of scratching their heads when it comes down to where would either side even find any room for for compromise. And as we come out of this summit, there's a number of issues that are boiling Maybe the next big flashpoint could be the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. Curious if we know if there's going to be a diplomatic boycott at this point. I know some corporations have talked about maybe not coming because of issues on Hong Kong, on Xinjiang, other issues that are out there. But what are you hearing, Rob? Uh, you know, are we going to see a diplomatic boycott like we did in 1980? Or well, what we're hearing, uh, sorry, what we're hearing from the Biden administration on that subject is crickets. They simply won't say what they plan to do about that. They're, uh, of course, under pressure to have a diplomatic boycott of the of the games. And, and it's important to distinguish a diplomatic boycott from a full on boycott, meaning that the athletes can't even go. Right now, we've got several senior senators who are trying to insert into the National Defense Authorization Act a provision that would basically enforce a diplomatic boycott. Uh, it's not clear whether or not whether that will get inserted into the NDAA, which is, by the way, must pass legislation because it, was, it is what funds the U.S. military. Uh, that's still a wait and see. Uh, whenever the Biden administration is asked about it, they remain silent. I think the Biden administration would just prefer that that whole discussion would just go away, but it won't. The legislative season is is fast coming to a close. So all eyes are on whether or not that will go through. And Mayjun, if if the U.S. were to do a diplomatic boycott rather than boycotting the athletes, what would that mean in Beijing? Would, would that be seen as an embarrassment? Would, would it just be something that would be ignored in state media that the U.S. isn't here with the diplomats? It's a good question. I think I think it would, of course, be seen as a major embarrassment. But if the embarrassment is too big to ignore, I think that in that case, we'll see uh, another campaign of state messaging saying how, you know, the U.S. is not even qualified to sort of give us this boycott and what they're, how they're doing the wrong things in terms of giving solidarity to the global community and over-politicalizing everything. But there are, of course, a lot of pressure on the Beijing side to sort of make it right, uh, to sort of create a so-called uh, favorable environment for the Beijing Olympics and, you know, to show an exact 
actually a very good stage for China to show its so-called openness and its successful containment of the pandemic and all that. So yes, I think it would be a, a big embarrassment. Well, there's going to be a lot to talk about. And I know we're going to get more details over the next few weeks coming out of both Beijing and Washington on this. So we'll look forward to your coverage and analysis on scmp.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Chad. Now, keep in mind, we spoke with Rob Delaney and Mai Jun on Thursday morning. So the news of Biden considering a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics had not happened yet. Before we move on to Singapore... Let me remind you that by the time you hear my voice, we will have published our very first weekly newsletter. That's right. It's called Listening Post. You'll be able to read about our latest podcast episodes from here in the SEMP, as well as pics from our archives. And our dedicated team of podcast producers, my man Jared Watt here, are also going to include reviews of the latest podcasts they're listening to from around the world. You can subscribe to Listening Post at scmp.com newsletter, or you can go to the link we've put up in the description. Hello, Bhavan. Uh, our listeners can't really see you right now and, and, and see that you're outside in the sunshine in Singapore. Could you tell us where you are right now? I'm actually at the Capella Hotel at uh, Sentosa Island in Singapore, also the site of the Kim Trump Summit. Uh, right now, it's playing host to the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, where you know uh, global elite have gathered for one of the biggest business forums uh, since the COVID pandemic began, we have had quite a lot of interesting conversations about what's happening here in ASEAN, uh, US-China ties, and various other uh, issues. Yeah, and unlike the uh, planned Davos summit in uh, in Singapore, it's it's you know you could call this the Davos of Asia now at this point, given the amount of dignitaries that came through this year. Right. I mean, we had uh, Wang Qishan, China's vice president, deliver uh, the opening address. We had uh, Gina Raimondo, Commerce Secretary for the U.S., you know, speaking about America's ambitions to reconnect uh, on a you know on an economic level with, with with the region. So a lot of interesting conversations having uh, taking place here on a, you know the public domain and also behind closed doors. These uh, officials are also having uh, you know talks with with the corporate leaders who have gathered here. Yeah, and, and we, we'll talk a little bit more uh, in a few minutes about sort of, you know, what you've seen and some of the folks you've talked to. But but first, uh, in the podcast, we, we've been talking a good, fair bit about Xi Jinping and Joe Biden having uh, their summit meeting uh, this week. But uh, she has a, another pr- pretty important one coming up. Uh, what's on the agenda this Monday when she meets with the leaders of ASEAN? So it's a special summit. Usually uh, when China meets with ASEAN as a bloc, it is uh, Premier Li Keqiang who fronts the meetings. This time round, uh, to mark the t- 30th anniversary of China uh, attaining dialogue partner status with ASEAN, President Xi is hosting a special virtual summit with the leaders. We are not quite sure what the agenda will be during the meeting ahead of this Monday summit. Uh, there's been there's been some talk that both sides will go ahead with elevating diplomatic ties between Beijing and ASEAN to what is called a comprehensive strategic partnership, which is a status that uh, China accords only to a few countries and and uh, international organizations. 
Uh, back in June, we, we heard from China's foreign minister, uh, Wang Yi, and he said that China would be elevating ties with ASEAN. Could you unpack that for us? What, what, what does that mean? In a sense, it means that China wants to accord the kind of status it grants to, to, to its closest partners, uh, say Russia, to some extent Pakistan. It's, it's kind of symbolic is to say that, uh, you know, uh, the ties that we have is, you know, a, a step above from the regular bilateral and multilateral ties that Beijing has with the rest of the world. I think it is a natural progression because uh, for almost all the ASEAN nations, China is the biggest trading partner. And uh, equally, as a bloc, ASEAN uh, is a formidable trading partner for, for China. And, and Bavan, let, let me just ask you about this. Is this a direct response, you know, sort of a diplomatic response to the push that the U.S. has been making in Southeast Asia lately? There's certainly been a lot of trips in Southeast Asia lately by U.S. diplomats. I mean, some, some diplomatic observers have made that assumption, right, that China's move to, to suggest that this elevation of ties uh, has come because of the increased American participation in Asian diplomacy in the last year since Joe Biden took office. Uh, it could well be true, but we have to note that at the moment, the elevation of ties remains a, a rather nebulous thing. We don't know how it manifests in terms of, uh, you know, economic participation or, you know, whether it mean more investments or whether there's going to be heightened strategic cooperation. All of that, there's very little, you know, clarity on, on, on what it means. Uh, ASEAN, for its part, the, the more vocal leaders... I have always been happy to entertain uh, this PR kind of uh, announcements. It allows them to to show China that they are keen to to, to keep ties on an even keel while they continue to cultivate relationships with the U.S. and other major powers. Then, speaking of economic cooperation, you know, we, we have the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, um, Gina Raimondo. She's in the region, as well as U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. She's making her first visit to the region as a, uh, you know, as a USTR. And then there's, uh, you know, on the agenda out there, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which China and Taiwan are hoping to both join. But we've heard that there's news that the U.S. has its own plans on this. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. This is actually one of the key things being discussed and, and passed here at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. What seems to be a multi-dimensional uh, dueling over, multi, uh, over multilateral trade. On one hand, we have... Uh, uh, China wanting to join the CPTPP, as you mentioned. Uh, not only China, uh, self-rule Taiwan is also keen to, to join the CPTPP, which is an 11-nation bloc that was actually previously championed by President Barack Obama until uh, Donald Trump came to office and torpedoed the deal, the original TPP deal, and left the U.S. out of it. So there are now 11 out of the original 12 countries are part of the CPTPP. For the U.S., it is anathema to be part of the of this pact. Uh, there is a kind of bipartisan resistance to be in any kind of new multilateral trade agreement because of the belief that this kind of thing basically destroys U.S. jobs, U.S. blue-collar jobs. So the U.S., is the, even the Joe Biden administration as as welcoming as it is about economic cooperation is saying that it, it is not going to go there. And it, instead, it is as China and Taiwan are uh, pitching to be part of the CPTPP, Gina Raimondo 
uh, in her Asia tour has been pitching uh, what she calls an economic framework among uh, America's uh, partners and allies. What this means is uh, also unclear. It could mean uh, kind of mini trade agreements on, 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 on niche issues, for example, on, on climate or on technology, but it will, it will not be the kind of uh, comprehensive agreements that normal multilateral trade agreements look like. And uh, I've just spoken to Ian Bremer, the Eurasia Group president, who, who says that she's quite uh, down on, 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 on the economic framework uh, plan. He says that basically it suggests that the U.S. is trying to find a way around the fact that it has no plan whatsoever on on how to go forward with multilateral trade agreements while the rest of the world is, you know, moving ahead. And uh, Bhavan, we've seen a lot of dignitaries, you know, uh, Gina Romano spoke yesterday, um, uh, Noel Quinn uh, from HSBC's in Singapore says he's not coming to Hong Kong for now. Uh, we, we had Bill Gates and Henry Kissinger via video. Uh, but what are you hearing from people on the ground? What are people talking about on the sidelines in, in the tea breaks, in, in the coffee breaks at the conference? Of course, you know, uh, Taiwan is an issue because the fact that it headlined the Monday virtual summit between President Xi and, uh, and Joe Biden. People are trying to get a sense of whether tensions are going to ease or whether they are going to stay at a status quo. The sense I'm getting is that people don't know where it's headed and there is a kind of wariness about where tensions are right now. And, you know, as you might have seen uh, yesterday, the Singapore Prime Minister addressed this forum in a gala dinner. And the headline that most of the international media outlets, including the Post, picked up from his remarks were that, you know, a mishap could happen because of the way the tensions are, even though a war is unlikely, you know, at the surface. Singapore, be it a, it's not often that we see a change in the Prime Minister. And, and Lee Soon uh, Long has uh, been in the position, you know, f- for many years. He's approaching his 70th birthday. Uh, it's been there since 2004. And he's announced he's stepping down. Can you talk us a little bit about the succession plans and sort of, you know, w- what the plans are with, with him ultimately stepping down? Yeah, I mean, this issue always comes up uh, when forums like this, because, for example, the, the moderator yesterday's uh, uh, gala dinner interview, you know, asked him about this yesterday and also when he, when he, when he last interviewed uh, Lee Sen Lung in 2018. And things have changed in, in that three years. Uh, Lee Sen Lung had initially planned to step down and hand over to a successor, you know, by the time he turned 70, which is next year. But uh, in, in period, the person who was anointed to be the, the next Prime Minister, Heng Siu Kiet, has decided that he did not want the job anymore for several reasons. And uh, that means that within the ruling People's Action Party, a contest is currently going on over who who should be uh, the next PM. So it's it's quite a kind of an opaque contest among the younger ministers. And yesterday, John Mikkel said, the Bloomberg chief editor, you know, joked that, you know, it seemed like a bit of a resemblance to the squid game that, that uh, Lee Sen Lung had put two of his key ministers seen as potential successors in the COVID-19 task force and that task force actually has has received a fair bit of brickbats from the public uh, because people are impatient and want things to open up. And so these two guys are the are the four guys. I mean, Lee Sen Lung brushed that off. He said that, you know, he, this is not a beauty contest. He's put people there to do the job. 
But given that this Prime Minister has been in power since 2004 and that he has previously said uh, he, he wants to step down by the time he turns 70, uh, Singapore usually state politics will continue to attract this kind of attention uh, until such time as you know a successor is named. Some observers expect that once the pandemic abates, the next prime minister could be named in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it's an uncertainty sort of swirls uh, around as, you know, I, I sat there and tried to figure out who was going to win the squid game. But, um, you know, are we on the verge of a generational change that's coming? It is a generational change from Lee Sen Lung's generation. Lee Sen Lung, as, as you know, is the eldest son of the founding leader, uh, Lee Kuan Yew. But Lee Sen Lung was the third prime minister. He took over from Lee Kuan Yew's uh, successor, Go Chok Tong. So the the, the, the fourth prime minister of Singapore will be from a uh, post-1965 generation. So 1965 is, a, is a, a key marker for Singapore because it's the year that they gained independence. So it is a new generation, but they kind of are still in the waiting room. The public perception was that they would have been in power already, but if not for the pandemic, but Lee and his lieutenants have remained in place to to see this crisis through. There's one more day of the, the new economy forum out there. Bavon, what, what should we be looking for, you know, coming tomorrow in, at, at the conference? So one of the key themes at this conference has been, you know, uh, the climate and, and green finance. Tomorrow morning, we will have uh, John Kerry, America's climate point man, addressing the forum by video link. That should be interesting. After that, uh, we have Tony Blair, uh, India's foreign minister, Jay Shankar, and former U.S. Uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, all in a, on the same panel discussing, you know, the future of the world order. So that, that uh, I think the two th- key things that uh, we will be looking out for on the last day of this forum, which actually uh, the, the fact that it is taking place is also quite interesting because, you know, we have not had such a, a business forum since the pandemic began. Uh, and, and Singapore gave some special provisions to the organizers to make sure that, you know, the, the, the global elite could fly in quarantine-free and, and at the same time, the, the event is taking place in a safe manner with quite intensive testing and social distancing protocol in place. This could be our future where, where events look like this, where, you know, the testing and, and, and social distance, distancing protocols are, are just the norm. I, I guess that makes for a, a somewhat awkward cocktail party uh, to, to end the event's days. But, uh, Bavon, thanks so much for joining us. And, and maybe you can ask Tony Blair about his plan for the Good Friday amendments. He says he's, he can fix that issue in the UK. We'll see. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's all we got in what's been a very busy week. We've had a message from our man in Brussels. He's currently our man in Lithuania. That's right, Lithuania. Look out next week because Finbar Birmingham is putting together some very special interviews for an episode looking at the changing relationship of China and Europe. Don't forget, you can follow the political economy team on Twitter at SCMP Economy. I'm at Chad Bray. Stay safe. Stay positive. See you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.